Welcome to the Script and Style Show, the web show where we talk about web development with the people that make it happen. Today's episode is brought to you by TrackJS JavaScript Error Monitoring. Know when errors hit your website with the context to find and fix bugs fast with TrackJS. Start your free trial today at trackjs.com. Hey there, welcome to the Script and Style Show, the web show where we talk about web development and the people that make it happen. I'm Todd Gardner from Viking JavaScript Error Monitoring, and my co-host, David Walsh, creator of the popular blog, davidwalsh.name. How's it going today, David? Uh, it's not going as well for me as it is to, for you. I mean, you look... It's, it's pretty nice, right? You look you like something. I, I can't think of the word. You look something. But you look like you're having fun, so I'm all for it. This is this is a, a an adjust or a, a ad hoc Halloween costume that came one day too late, so I'm wearing it today to celebrate it all the same. Uh, and I think it's a good look. I think it's a good look. I mean, this takes the beard to like a whole nother level. I mean, my regular beard is pretty nice, but like this, a level this up or level down? Which which way? Which level? Which way? Well, which going? A level down. Definitely. Yeah. A level. Look, this one has braids in it. You know what? I think that I'm, I'm not enjoying it as much as you are because I asked my wife if I could get one of those and it got shot down immediately. Immediately. So I, it might just be jealousy. I think that might be it. I think it is. I think, <laughs> I mean, I can't explain it any other way. It is ridiculously hot though. So as awesome as it looks, I don't think I'm going to be able to wear it the whole show. I'm like literally already starting to sweat. <laughs> from wearing this. You need to commit, man. You 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 know you can't you can't back out of this. I'm gonna like be all like shiny and shit by the end of the show from sweat beating up on my forehead. It's dedication, man. <laughs> well, what's happening in your life, man? There's a lot going on outside of my life, so I thought this week that we could uh, have another episode where we talk about some awesome stuff going on in the news. Does that sound good with you? Sounds great. There's a lot that has happened in the last couple of couple of days, couple of weeks. Well, let's kick it off with something that you had mentioned to me recently. Google, I'm sorry, Google, GitHub's outage. GitHub had a massive outage, and they wrote a really nice um, postmortem article about it. Um, so what can we what can we take from this? They were down about twenty four hours, or at least it was, you know, not. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't right. like completely down. It was like um, degraded service because there were definitely some things that you were able to do on their service. Right? You could. Um, I think you could still commit. You could still. Um, uh, you could still like pull the core Git features down, but you couldn't like do PR stuff. You couldn't raise issues. You couldn't do commenting. Any of the metadata based things about their service were all offline. Uh, and this was on October 21st, and they were they were in this state for like 24 hours. And uh, they wrote an excellent post postmortem. I'll put a link in the show notes. I just dropped it in the chat, um, and it talks about why this happened. Um, and it's a very common. Um, common situation that I think a lot of um, a lot of architects are trying to build themselves up into where they had two different data centers for uh, better availability and response times. And the two different data centers needed to synchronize data with each other so that when somebody did a write, you know, it would go to whichever one was the primary and like uh, forward the data across. But 
earlier in, in that day, the, the two data centers lost contact with each other for 43 seconds. That was literally the only amount of time that they couldn't talk to each other. But in that 43 seconds, they got into a partition state, which means that like the data stores on the two different sides both thought that they were the ones in charge. They both had like subsets of data that were different than what the other one had, and they were no longer able to sync. And so they got into the situation that happens with a lot of like cluster data uh, technologies um, where both sides thought they were in charge and they couldn't they couldn't like reunite without a bunch of manual work. Uh, and so the the GitHub uh, operations folks who were, who were dealing with this uh, made a, a, a fantastic decision, in my opinion, to prioritize the correctness of data, the data consistency over availability, which is what caused the issue to last 24 hours. It took them essentially 24 hours to fix it and make sure the data was correct. Um, Whereas, you know, they could have just, you know, thrown away old data probably and or had inconsistent data and come back sooner. Uh, but I think this is a really interesting read um, talking about how um, how things can go kind of wrong in unexpected ways when we build out these elaborate uh, decoupled architectures, even when small outages happen, which are inevitable, right? Like you're never going to have two data centers that have no downtime between them. Right. First of all, that sounds like an absolute nightmare, both from like an internal GitHub perspective as well as a user perspective. Now, when you brought this to me, I was sort of surprised because I thought to myself, I don't remember this happening. But as we'll talk about in a later news item, I wasn't so much on Git and uh, GitHub that week. Um, one of the one of the internal fights that always comes up at Mozilla, um, or I should say comes up from time to time, is moving to GitHub. And by internal fights, I mean me asking my boss constantly, why isn't Firefox on GitHub, right? Um, and I work on the debugger, which actually is on GitHub. And that's really nice for us because um, GitHub has such a large user base and it makes it so easy to contribute to other projects that you, you always sort of want to be like, well, why, why don't we just use GitHub? This is a perfect example of why you should be somewhat scared to use services, whether it's, you know, for your small project or something as huge as Firefox, you know, like you, you take power out of your own hands by using that other service. Does that make sense? It, it does. I mean, that's always the trade-off that you're, you're making, right? It's if I, I don't have my own capability of providing some service or it will be expensive for me to provide that capability, I can offload that to some third-party service, maybe in exchange for some money, and, and they'll handle it. And it works out great when they handle it. But if, you know, they have outages or they aren't responsive to you or it's not obvious on how to work with them, then that equation isn't there. And, and what that equation is and how those things are all prioritized is different for everybody. Um, the vast majority of people who use GitHub use it in the entirely open source uh, way and for free. And to them, I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> you, didn't pay, you didn't pay for it, sure, right? Right. Yep. In, in the in the same way that like users of Facebook are the product, 
the free users of GitHub are the product. Right. Like, you, you're making it this default community so that they can sell it to big companies that want to do private things with it. Um, and so I think it's those people that are more, have, have more of a justification on why they might want to be upset, right? Because right. they actually put something to it. Yeah. Um, what's, what's interesting to me is that there is a difference in, in attitudes versus when they architected the platform versus when they were triaging the problem. Uh, when they were triaging the problem, they, they decided that the data consistency was the most important thing. And that you know, bringing the service back online with data as the user expected it is more important than coming back online fast. But the underlying architecture is a eventual consistency style where like it is intentionally not always correct so that it can go fast and be available. And those two things are kind of like at odds with each other. Like which one, as a company, which one is more important to them? Um, I, I just thought that was was uh, was interesting is all. Totally. And again, you can't you can't move away from using services, right? Like that's that's not the way that the the dev world works these days. Um, oh no, everything everything is so complex. It would not be feasible or sustainable for for anybody to not rely on the the code and the services of other people. Totally. But we're operating at a very high level of abstraction these days. Right. But again, it's it's all weighing the risk reward and. If you're uh, if you're counting on GitHub to be 100% at that time or any time, you could be headed for trouble. Yeah, and I don't think anybody will ever be 100%. What what I really liked about GitHub and how they handled it is that um, they were very upfront when they were when they were having issues, and their postmortems were incredibly transparent and timely, which I think is is very very good. I've seen postmortems come out of both Amazon and Microsoft that were nowhere close to this good. Like um, my personal experiences with, uh, with uh, cloud providers have been, they're very slow to report that they're having problems and they don't tell you the whole truth or they throw somebody under the bus when, when they're doing a postmortem. And I, so I, I thought this was one of the better ones I've ever read. Awesome. So, so what's next? What what else is going on in the news this week? Well, let's talk about another postmortem. Let's talk about this Firefox debugging postmortem. Oh boy, let's do it. Um, so I wrote a blog post earlier this week, um, discussing something that most people don't want to admit, and that's failure. Um, and I think failure in this case is a bit of a harsh, harsh word, but. I was tasked at Mozilla with removing the old Firefox DevTools debugger. Sure, we have this nice one that I've been working on for the past year or so, um, but the old debugger still remained in Firefox, and you could turn it back on with a preference. What happened was this task, believe it or not, was way more complex than I thought it was going to be. Um, I went through several iterations of trying to remove it. And basically every step of the way I ran into a roadblock. And in the end, I could look at what I did during that time and say, I did it all wrong. And you know this too. Uh, You know, before we 
before the show started the last few weeks, I was sort of, what's the word? Enraged. Not enraged. Yep. No, that's wrong. Fr- frust- frustrated. Maybe frustrated. a little crazy. Yes. Um, but I let it get to the point where it was affecting me, like, personally, where I couldn't sleep at night. And, you know, you end up not wanting to go into work. And I was bringing my computer to family dinner to keep working on it because it was almost done. And, um, yeah, so in that article, I detailed what I did wrong, how I did it wrong, and what I would do over again. And so as a cheap plug, again, go check out the blog post on my website. It's right at the top. And uh, yeah. And, have linked you have- the sh- and linked in the show notes and everything. I So I read it. I, I mean, I think you're a little too hard on yourself, dude. Like, I think we've all been in a situation where, where a bit of work on a code base that we think is going to be easy and trivial. And it's just like, Oh, I'm just going to delete these files. It'll be good. Turns into a monster. Like you just start pulling a bit of yarn on that sweater. And then all of a sudden the whole thing just kind of comes apart and you have to figure out where, where is the appropriate place to cut off this work and just like leave some gross rough edges that like, I just can't fix all of it right now. I just got to make my cuts. Um, what what I wanted to ask you about, and maybe this is an uncomfortable question, but like how much of that frustration was you putting that on yourself versus the organization putting it on you? 100%. 100%. I had a manager that was supportive. My colleagues were supportive. Um, I think part of it is that in every week, the DevTools team has a meeting and like, the debugger reports on what they've done over the past week, the inspector reports, the net network monitor reports, right? And everybody knew I was working on this thing because every week I was like, oh, it's almost done. And it would it just kept bleeding on. And it was almost a source of like, I felt humiliated each week with it not being done. You know what I'm saying? Um, and of course, again, my manager was super supportive. He's like, David, this is a really tough task and you're doing fine. You know, like we knew it would take a while. But I, there were, there were other circumstances too. Like there's some other features in, there were some people on vacation. So I just, I like, I felt that I needed to be everything, do everything and do it quickly. And when you have the, this big task, for me mentally, it's hard to think to say, okay, I'm going to leave this big thing where it is, and I'm going to knock out these small things. Mm-hmm. I have a really hard time doing that. So organization-wise, I wasn't pressured at all. But I put the pressure on myself because I – a voice in my head was saying a senior developer shouldn't be having these problems, I think, is is one of the big issues. Have you ever had – like? you've been in the industry a long time. Can you think back on something like this where you like, it just got to you? Yeah. Like I, I had lots of times when I was um, consulting and and such where I had taken on a, like a, a piece of work and it turned out to be bigger than I, than I thought it had. And I tied up like my reputation in it. And like, I felt like I'd, I'd set expectations with people 
too soon. Like, I feel like that was my core problem. If I'm looking back on the problem is that I set the expectation that this was going to be easy and fast. And then when it turned out to not be easy and fast, um, I felt like I was failing as a developer or that I didn't, I didn't warrant to be at the level that I was at because I couldn't do it as fast as I thought I could do it. Um, and, and like, I was totally at a point a number of times where, you know, I would work through dinner. I would work all day, come home, work all night just to like push through and try and get like, try and push and get something done. And in retrospect, it was almost always a bad idea and that I would end up making more mistakes uh, or, or just doing dumb things because I was pushing it too hard. Um, I think something that I learned somewhere along the way was to almost never give estimates. Um, because I don't feel like I have uh, a reliable ability to say how big something is going to be until I start it. Because so often I run into a thing where something little turns out to be something big. In fact, I'm on something right now for TrackJS internals that I thought was going to be little. And I thought like that I, I had finished this thing a week ago. Um, we're rebuilding our tracking agent. And that was a fair bit of work. We didn't rebuild it. We uh, revved the major version to make it support ES6 modules. Um, but that work, the core work of making that happen was done like a week or two ago. But what I've had to fight the last two weeks is all of the peripheral stuff in the app that is affected by that. So like, how are we going to automatically do releases with this? Uh, I need to change a URL structure. How are we going to show code samples in our app to show you how to use this new way? Well, what about the customers that still have it the old way? Now we have to build like a little UI switcher so that the, U the users can see the new way versus the old way in examples and stuff like that. Um, and just all of this, this niggly work that wasn't part of the core thing, but is just making it drag on. Um, but I don't think I'm nearly that stressed out about it because I never really made any expectations to anybody else about how long this was going to take. Yeah, I think I set an expectation for myself, I think is the issue. Um, where at first it was like, oh, cool, I'm going to learn a lot. And then you get to a certain point of something where you just, where it turns from excitement to, I just want this done. And I think that's what started pushing me down a path of negative feeling and got me in trouble. So, like I said, people should go look at that, um, revel in my failure, um, as well as just sort of, just sort of learn all of the mistakes that I made and, and don't, don't make those same mistakes, if that makes sense. Um, next up, there was a Google staff walkout, Todd. There was. <laughs> yeah, the walkout's happening today. Uh, it's being reported by a bunch of news sources. This isn't really core, you know, tech. It just involves a very big tech company. Um, but it's on, you know, the cover of, of most of the, the, the news uh, mags today. Uh, here's an article from the BBC that we'll leave in, in chat uh, and the show notes uh, kind of detailing it. Uh, but it seems like the core of this issue is that uh, uh, 
Google employees all over the world are walking out today to protest how sexual misconduct is handled by Google management. Uh, there was a high-level uh, article published in the New York Times about one of their uh, higher-ups, Andy Rubin, who was the creator of Android, uh, was recently dismissed from Google after being awarded a $90 million severance. Um, Andy had been credibly accused of sexual misconduct, um, and uh, they made the decision to let him go with this um, with this severance rather than just purely firing him. Uh, there have been a number of other uh, other cases detailed in some of these these sort of things. And so, in order, in a massive show of solidarity, uh, Google is uh, the Google employees around the world are walking out um, to, to as a as a sign to their management that they won't tolerate this sort of uh, this sort of attitude. Uh, they want more transparency in in how these things happen. They want uh, the removal of forced arbitration, which is this barrier that keeps you from suing your employer that uh, many employers require you to sign as part of a uh, uh, employment agreement. Um, and so they, they, they want more control over how this sort of thing happens. Well, first of all, good for the Google employees for standing up to something that they didn't um, think was right. I feel I'm trying not to get too political here because that that just leads to trouble. Um, I feel there's like pol- there's politics in life, right? I feel like the world is in a really strange place right now, really strange. Where for a long time things felt like they were getting better, um, and you know, specifically looking at like. LGBTQ community and, um, you know, marriage equality. And there's been a push toward um, outing and, I don't know, is shaming the right word? Um, You know, persons who've been um, credibly accused of assault and um, harassment. You have that on one hand. And then you have leadership, country, world leadership, I guess, who don't seem to be getting punished for it, you know? And it like, it's really incredibly odd. I'm very, very happy that the Google employees are doing this. I think that severancing someone who's been accused of this sort of thing is uh, not the most, certainly not the most politically correct move, but it's also not necessarily maybe the right move. Um, although we don't have all of the details. No, I mean, we, we don't know how much of this is. Um, maybe it was in his contract and there was no way for them not to pay it. Sure. But maybe they need to adjust the way they write contracts. So, yeah. that, so that if people are being dismissed over um, improprieties, that... That they lose, um, lose their bonuses, lose their severances, lose their whatevers. Right. And and reading the article, I mean, they they provide a listing of what the employees are asking for, right? Um, A commitment to end pay and opportunity inequality. I think that's something that we can all get behind. Um, Publicly disclosed sexual harassment transparency report. 
that makes sense to me. Um, inclusive process for reporting sexual misconduct, safety, and anonymously, which makes sense. Um, the appointment of an employee representative on the board. All of this stuff makes sense to me. Um, from, from a, I guess from a, a common sense standpoint, that all makes sense to me. But we all know that businesses aren't always um, uh, run on common sense, I guess, right. is, is the, the issue. And, and one of the one of the things I think this is going to be a bit of a rub is is one of their last requests, the end of ending of forced arbitration. Right. Um, because there's a, I mean, it sucks from an employee perspective to be forced into arbitration, but there's a reason from the company perspective that they want to do it as well, because lawsuits are incredibly expensive, even if they are frivolous. And, um, Unfortunately, there are still a lot of lawsuits that would cost a lot of money, uh, even if they aren't all um, valid. And so it's hard to understand whether or not they are going to be willing to do that. It seems like that's a a small, like um, having one company change that policy without changing the larger environment seems like a non-starter. Right? right, because they're still operating in the same legal system with the same constraints that they were before that uh, led to the desire to create a forced arbitration system. Right. Um, and so just for, you know, holding the company to do it without changing the overall system seems like it's not going to go anywhere. What's, I mean, ultimately, whether or not this changes anything is kind of an, an interesting question is, you know, it's a one day walkout. Um, how much is that going to hurt Google? I don't know. It's not like a strike. It's not like they're all walking out indefinitely. Right. Right. Cause there's that, um, there's like a hotel in California somewhere where like they've been on strike for like two weeks, like all the workers. Um, and obviously that's, <laughs> that's hurting them quite a bit because they can't have any guests or whatever. But if Google's employees aren't there for one day, it's obviously a PR problem, but I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how much this public pressure actually applies to changing Google culture. I mean, let's hope it does. It, it- it starts with, with us, right? And us being good to each other um, when we go into work every day that we're not harassing people. But I, I think it's a really, I think it is an important statement for people to walk out when they don't feel like they're, um, they're being supported the way that they need to, especially with cases of un, unfair harassment and such. That's really not acceptable. Unfair harassment? Is there is there well, fair no. harassment? <laughs> Inappropriate harassment. Is, <laughs> is there appropriate harassment? I don't know. I don't I, think you need to qualify. I think it's just harassment. Sure. <laughs> All right. I'll give you that. Let, let's move on to the next topic. So we yeah. have uh, a big acquisition happening in tech this week. IBM has uh, offered... 34 billion dollars billion with a b 
in cash to purchase Red Hat. Uh, there's an article in Ars Technica that has a, has a really good coverage of it that we'll post in the show notes. Um, I find that this is this makes tons of tons and tons of sense to me. Like these two players have operated in parallel in a lot of industries for a long time. Uh, they both have a, a pretty good balance of open source and enterprise focus. Um, they're both kind of uh, lagging, I guess, in terms of um, tech interest. Uh, and so hopefully that we'll be able to like start a little something together. Um, and that amount of money is, is nothing. I mean, that, that's a $34 billion in cash is a lot of, a lot of cash. It is. And the last time that we did an in the news, it was Microsoft buying GitHub, right? And we had a discussion of, oh, is this, is this good for the open source world? Um, I guess you could argue that the same things sort of apply with IBM and Red Hat, but as Red Hat CEO said, we're not an open source company, we're a, an enterprise company that, you know, is built around open source. Um, one thing that really struck me about this is, again, the, part of the reasoning behind it, which you had mentioned, was that um, Red Hat, I'm sorry, Linux is like the leading distribution for, you know, cloud stuff, right? And IBM's trying to increase their cloud capital. Thirty-four billion dollars tells you how much money is in the cloud and why everybody's making these or has been making these cloud plays over the past what five plus years now Mm -hmm. that stood out to me another thing that another feeling that i sort of got immediately is that ibm has a pretty good reputation do they not for like you don't you don't see them going in and like turning things up and messing things up and screwing people mm. over and and being crazy like that, right? There, there's a there's a tried and true like I worked in in like corporate IT for many years and there was uh, like a well understood saying of like if you're doing like a vendor comparison, you're like going to buy a piece of software, or a piece of hardware, or a piece of technology from somebody. The quote is that nobody ever got fired for picking IBM. Right is. Implying that you know they're not the cheapest; they're almost never the cheapest. But the project almost the project rarely fails, right? So no, nobody ever gets fired for picking IBM. And I think that's you know a statement to to you know they don't fuck up very often. They might not be the most interesting. They might not be the most cutting edge. They're they're, they're reliable. I think is my impression. I always got. Absolutely. So we'll see where this goes. I mean, do, how do you work a lot with the cloud now? I was the cloud mean. Man. I, I don't know. I went I went termy there for a minute. Um, like one one could say that TrackJS is the cloud. We are a software as a service provider. Does that mean we're a cloud? There were software as a service providers before the word cloud was commonly used. Or is the cloud only infrastructure as a service, platform as a service stuff. I, I mean, I don't know. Um, do we use um, some infrastructure and platform as a service things in, as building our stuff out? Sure. But we don't, I, I wouldn't say that we're super dependent on it. We also like use a lot of our own hardware uh, where it makes sense. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't okay. know what the word cloud means. I don't. I don't know where the boundaries of the cloud are. <clears throat> um, they're there with Web 2.0, and um... <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's get to our let's get and to microservices. Our... <laughs> right there, we go. All right, let's get to our last topic. It's the one that I'm super excited about. Do you know what turned 10 years old this week? I do. Uh, it's this little um, uh, fad. Uh, and uh, <laughs> currency pyramid scheme that I like to call Bitcoin. Bitcoin turned 10 this week, <laughs> for which I'm incredibly excited about. Um, and it, everyone, everyone has their own take on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general. I, a brilliant futurist, Sees, yes, that's my new title. <laughs> sees like everything's going tech, right? There's not going to be a day where things stop going tech. In which case, it only makes sense that money at some point will be completely tech driven, right? We're not going to have these dollar dollar bills. Like, and and one thing that. You know, people are like, oh, Bitcoin will never, crypto could never take off. So, like, I can agree with the first statement without having the conclusion that Bitcoin is the way that we will turn. It might not be Bitcoin that is the eventual, you know, winner out of all of this. But it's got people thinking a different way. You can't watch CNBC for an hour without a Bitcoin segment, right? Um, Businesses are accepting Bitcoin. It, like it's it's on the upward trajectory, and people judge it too much based on price, right? And that's that's why I'm excited about. Well, I'm also excited about Bitcoin get because I got in early. But I think that how many, how many Lambos you rocking these days? <laughs> I'll do my I'll do my uh, I'll do the next show from inside the Lambo. Um, are we gonna do Are we gonna do a Cribs episode with Cribs. with D D Walsh and his Lambos? Yeah, it's gonna be called Lambos. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like it and I mean this very seriously, it's gotten people to think differently about money and what money means and what we should expect with being able to send money like that, um, send money without um, having to deal with uh, currency conversion, for example. I think but you uh, but you do have to deal with currency conversion. How so? I mean like you've already just transferred your currency into Bitcoin. Bitcoin isn't, isn't an operating currency in a very wide market. Like there's some online marketplaces that can accept Bitcoin, but you don't get paid in Bitcoin. And the vast majority of the things that you purchase are not in Bitcoin. So in order for you to pay with Bitcoin, you're still running two conversions. One where you're converting US dollars into Bitcoin, and then a second where your uh, provider is converting their Bitcoin into their chosen currency. Today, that's how it is today. But we're looking far future from now. I'm telling you, man, you like it's it, it. This stuff doesn't happen overnight. But if you look at what's happened in the 10 years, like I said, it's all over the news constantly. People are accepting it for payment. People are sending it to pay. It's like the price point's gone from cents to, oh, it's like $6,300 now. So I think that 
It's still very early days, even after 10 years. But cryptocurrency is going in the right direction and Bitcoin is going in the right direction. And that's despite loads of competition and um, bad actors um, like Bitcoin Cash and such. So I'm excited. Happy 10th birthday to Bitcoin. Go out and buy some Bitcoin, Todd. Uh, nah. <laughs> Damn it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy things that have uh, solid value. Such as? An asset that has um, an actual thing behind it, like a stock or a bond or... I mean, that's where I invest money because Bitcoin is only worth what it's worth because that's what a market has decided. And so that's because it doesn't have a... Government backing? Well, it doesn't have any government backing, but it also doesn't have any asset behind it. It's just, it's it's a sentiment of how other, how futurists like you are <laughs> feeling about Bitcoin on that given day. And if everybody is super positive about Bitcoin that day, the price goes up. If people are like, oh, I don't know about Bitcoin anymore, maybe, maybe this is a fad, then the price goes down. And like, there's nothing, there's nothing else behind it. Like there is nothing that prevents the price of Bitcoin from going to zero. There's no like asset that could get sold off at the end. Most of what you just described could be the same for a stock, right? But a company has, a company has assets. Like a company, like you're, you're absolutely right. Like there's penny stocks, right? The things where you're investing in a company and that company doesn't like nobody knows who they are and they might take off, but they might go bankrupt and go to zero. But when you're investing in a company like like IBM or Microsoft or Red Hat or Facebook or whatever, like there's assets behind that company. It's not like they might take a hit if they get bad reputation, but it's not going to go to zero because that company is like the name, their assets, their employees, they have cash in the bank. There's, there's things behind that stock that are real. I agree with you, but if things go drastically south for any company, the stock price is still going to get crushed. True. So, so you could, you know, let's say they sell off what they have left. And, but if there's a lot of stockholders, you're going to get nothing anyways, right? Gonna- Absolutely. I'm not, I'm not arguing that point. My point is, is that um, the price of that stock is a function of the assets they have and the performance of the people running that company. Contrast that with the price of a Bitcoin, which is the sentiment of the people who hold Bitcoin. Like nobody's taking like actions. It's just like how everybody feels about it that day and how much is mined. It's not like any value has been created in the world, right? Uh, Agree to disagree. (laughs) I win. Happy 10th (laughs) birthday to Bitcoin. Happy birthday. We need, we have need you, to- have, 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 All right. So this is, this is old news for Bitcoin. This isn't a thing for Bitcoin anymore. But did you um, ever read or watch the conference talk on the postmortem of Mt. Gox? Uh, I'm familiar with what happened there, but I did not watch that or read. So, so there is a, um, a, a, a conference talk. I will find it and put it in the show notes here. 
and it's of a forensic investigator. Uh, it's his, like, he's the, the person presenting, and he went through the Mt. Gox financials after it collapsed to, like, figure out what happened. And it is wild. Like, there was, like, no protection at all. They were hacked, like, four or five times over the course of their existence and they knew about it and they just like kept going anywhere anyway, because they were avoiding a a bank run. As long as the price was going up, they were fine. But as soon as the price crashed, they actually didn't have any of the assets they said they had. Right. And so it caused a run on the bank. Um, What I think is, is, is interesting about that story is not necessarily that Mt. Gox was scummy because like there's, you know, there's scummy actors everywhere. It's that, I think Bitcoin is re is having to relearn all of the economic lessons that the rest of the world learned over the last 500 years. Like there's a reason why we have a central bank. Like we didn't create it for funsies. Like, and I think, I think Bitcoin, I think, I think if e-currency is going to be a thing, I think we're going to end up in a very similar place. I think there'll be a central bank, a central clearinghouse. In theory, that might be a good problem to have then, right? Because it's, it's gained that sort of legitimacy. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll just have to see. Right now, I think that the lack of regulation is such is, um, is a feature and not a bug. Because, <laughs> because we've seen... You know, uh, you like when you mention stocks, like CEO does something stupid, stock crashes. Um, you know, banks do scummy stuff. So for most for most of the most of the situations that people point out with regard to cryptocurrency, you can very easily liken it to something that we see every day in other parts of business and money. And so that's my thought. Happy 10th birthday, Bitcoin. <laughs> All right. I can't find that thing right now, but I will definitely post a link to that in our show notes once I, uh, once I locate it. All right. So that was our topics for the day. Anything else come up to you while we were chatting? Um, going with takeaways, I think that my takeaway is that I, not, I need to not use descriptive words with harassment. All harassment's bad. <laughs> I just want to make that perfectly clear. Um, I don't know, man. Tech is tech is a wild world, and it's only going to get more crazy. Um, I think that I'm most out of the stuff that we talked about. I'm most excited that that Google employees are fighting for um, equality and and good treatment. That makes me feel good. How about you, Todd? I like the story you shared about your postmortem of this trying to remove the debugger tool because it really made me think about the times I've run into it. And I imagine a lot of people in tech have run into this case where they've, um, it's, it's kind of tied up with imposter syndrome probably, is you take on a task that you think is going to be easy and then you think you're not worth anything when you can't solve it as fast as you thought you could. And I think you should just realize that that's, that happens to all of us. Um, And software is hard and it's complex and um, don't feel bad when it's not as easy as you think it's going to be because it's all, we've all been there. 
and easy tasks can get hard real fast. That'd be my takeaway. Thank you. That was that was heartwarming. Aww. I need I Okay, we we definitely <laughs> need to go. All right, we'll finish it up. All right, so we will be back next Thursday. We did not have our uh, outline put together yet, but we are working on it. Uh, if you have ideas for what you'd like us to talk about or who you'd like us to talk with, please let us know on Twitter, um, and we will uh, we'll get that all set up. In the meantime, thank you so much for joining with us. Uh, show notes will be online shortly. If you'd like to talk, chat with either of us, Twitter's probably the best way. I'm at Todd H. Gardner. I'm at David Walsh Blog. Thanks so much for being with us. Bye. The Script and Style Show is recorded and produced by David Walsh and Todd Gardner. We'll see you next time on Script and Style.